It is that time of year again here at the Leukemia Foundation to talk about the world's greatest shave. The world's greatest shave is one of the country's longest running and most iconic fundraising campaigns, bringing Australians together to champion a good cause for over 25 years. Every year, each March, a community of trailblazers step up to shave, cut or colour their hair, all in the name of funding game-changing blood cancer support and research. Every dollar you will raise will help keep families together when they need it the most. We'll provide practical and emotional support services to patients and their families. We'll help fund cutting-edge research and campaign for change for those affected. We'll help families meet basic costs like putting food on the table, getting to hospital or paying bills. You will join a community of trailblazers determined to shape a brighter future for blood cancer patients and their families. A community that champions change, that doesn't take no for an answer. So why don't you sign up to the Leukemia Foundation's World's Greatest Shave and shave, cut or colour your hair in support of Australians facing blood cancer. Every dollar you will raise will help provide support services to patients and families and keep them together. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. It was the 14th of September 2006. It was a beautiful day in Brisbane. This was the day that the spotlight was shone on Julie Allen's existence. A young mum of three small children, a physiotherapist. Life was busy and hectic, but that was all about to stop in its tracks that day. Julie Allen's world came crashing down when she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
Julie spoke with one of our blood cancer support coordinators, Marianne Scaparis, to share the story of her diagnosis. Hi, Julie. Welcome to our podcast series. So, Julie, tell me a bit about yourself. Where were you when you were diagnosed and what were you doing with your life? Yeah, thanks, Marianne. Um, Okay, at the time of diagnosis for me, I was a young mum. I was 35 years old. Um, I had three children under the age of six. Um, I was a physiotherapist working in private practice and had been travelling prior to that a lot with different sporting teams. Um, So I'd always been someone, you know, sort of thinking on your feet and I'd had a number of vague symptoms of that could have been anything for quite a while. So my little two-year-old, he was a heifer. And so I started getting some mid-back pain, but, you know, physio head, oh, that's just me carrying my 20-kilo two-year-old around up and down sand hills on our holidays at Stratty, so that's probably what that is. Um, I had a flu-y-type symptoms that, you know, I kept explaining away as, oh, I'm really run down, this is why I'm not getting better, I'm really busy with the kids. Um, And they just sort of, it just didn't go away. And it got to a point, Marianne, I had been to be checked and I'd had, the one thing though, I hadn't had a chest x-ray because Mm -hmm. I'd get to the GP and I'd go, you know, like, it's just me. Look, I know I'm just, I'm just run down and that's probably all it is. And so I'd explain away my reason for why I was presenting as I was and get some antibiotics and walk away, but I didn't actually get better. Um, It got to the point though, and I'm really embarrassed to say this, where I could no longer lay supine at night um, I because I couldn't breathe. Um, wow. Uh, I could breathe if I laid left side up, not left side down, but left side up. But I literally at night had to be almost quite vertical and almost sitting up to be able to get any sleep whatsoever and then with that the night pain started um just raging pain through my chest and uh in my ears in all these odd sort of spots um Mm, in your ears in my yes and that's an important point that I make right there Mm. um because in my physio training we had been told that unremitting night pain was a massive red flag it was going to be a cancer and but you just had to send the patient to try and work out what it was. So I sort of knew, went back to the GP and went, hey, I think I'm in a spot of trouble. Um, He got me into an ENT specialist because by this stage as well, the left side of my neck had swollen right out. Like it was almost like I had a connection between my chin and my um, shoulder, uh, with, wow. which was just swelling. And so he was thinking maybe I had like a thyroiditis, like a really acute mm. infection. Uh, went off to the ENT. He couldn't even get a scope down my throat. He couldn't get anything down my nose. Um, and I just, I burst into tears and I was quite frank mm. with him. And I said, listen, you just have to find what it is, find what it is and find what it is fast. He was due to go on holidays that afternoon at five o'clock and he said, head straight for a CT and I will um, I will ring you before I leave. I will not leave without calling you. Um, and so I had the CT scan. I couldn't, I couldn't actually. No blood tests? 
oh, I had had blood tests along the way, but oh, okay. really non-conclusive, nothing really mm-hmm. other than yeah. a liver function, nothing else came up. Um, couldn't lay down for the CT because I couldn't lay supine, felt like I was oh, literally wow. couldn't breathe. Um, and he called me and I've subsequently written him a number of letters to thank him for what he did because he called me at, I think it was like five to five and said, where are you now? He was very calm. And I said, yep, I'm at home with the kids. And he said, who's with you? And I said, it's okay, mum's here. And he just gave me a plan. And that was sort of, again, I guess the start of it. He just said, Julie, um, you have a cancer. I can't tell you what it is, but it's very, very large and it has wrapped itself around all your windpipes, around your heart. It's in the mediastinum. It's about as large as a football. And he said, "Um, I don't know what it is, but this is what we're going to do. And he then stepped me through my next hour. He said, I need you to pack a bag. I need your mum to stay with the kids. He said, on your way through to the martyr, I have a doctor waiting for you. He said, Stop at um, Green Slopes because uh, I'm in Brisbane. Um, grab the CT scans from the radio for the radiography department, radiology department. Uh, he said, head straight to the hospital. The doctor will not go home until you get there. Um, and he said, and, we'll f- and he will then tell you what to do next. And ironically, I walked into what was then Hoka up here in Brisbane um, yes. to see the oncologist. And his secretary happened to be my sister's mother-in-law, who then oh, <laughs> she used to take wow. one look at me, burst into tears. I, we were both crying. And she said, get in here. And of course, they don't know in that moment what it is. They knew that it was something, but they knew that it was uh, a blood cancer, uh, most likely a lymphoma, but not what type. Um, and they did a very quick physical, put me straight to hospital. Um, his secretary came up then with a little bag. She said, I don't know if you remember to pack a toothbrush. And she gave me some toiletries, which was just so beautiful. And mm. that was the end. I didn't come home for a month while they ran tests and got me started with things. But um, yeah, 35, three kids under six, and that's where it started. So, Julie, you mentioned to us that you were in hospital for a month. Now, a lady who was, um, you know, you've described yourself as quite a busy lady, one that's done a lot of travel, um, obviously a physiotherapist with a business, young children. Your life for you would have been quite busy to then find yourself in a hospital bed for a month. Yeah, yeah. How did you manage that Uh, emotionally? What did you draw on? Yeah, I think, um, and talking to a lot of my patients, I don't think I'm the only one that this sort of happens to, but for me, what I found, and I think I call it survival mode when other people are sort of talking about it, um, pretty much what I found was that your brain just shut down, okay? So all I Mm -hmm. could contemplate uh, was what was happening in that moment, um, I okay. put a call into the practice, uh, my practice, to say we need to transfer everybody to somebody else's list. I don't, I don't know. I'm just because we didn't know what was going on. I just said I'm, I'm unwell. Can we just transfer all my patients until I get back to you? Um, called mum and went. You've got the kids for as long as we know because my husband was also travelling a little bit with work. Um, oh. And but for me, I think what gets you through. Um, 
And I think the brain is, and that's my area of fascination with what I do now, is the brain is so clever. Um, and it literally shut down to a point where I could literally focus on just what was happening in that moment. Maybe a half an hour to an hour at a time was all I would think about. But if I woke up in the morning, the idea of what was maybe happening in that afternoon was too much to think about. It was just I'd wait for the nursing staff that morning to come in and say, okay, this, you know, in in the next hour someone will come and get you and you need to head down to radiology and we need these tests done. And then they'd bring back. The other thing that happened uh, the night that I was um, put into hospital for whatever reason, and I think it's been explained to me, maybe it was my body starting to shut down a little bit, um, I threw a raging pancreatitis. So I have very little oh. memory of that first night because mm. they had to immediately put me on really high doses of pain relief trying to work mm. out what else was going on because I was in um, acute 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 pain acute pain yeah so those first probably the first five days was trying to get that under control before they could really do too many tests so again it it was literally about um just taking what was in front of me and being very much in the moment and focusing on that and just getting through that and then waiting for somebody to tell me what was the next thing I had to do I, I pretty much it was sort of like I needed a plan someone just tell me what I'm doing this hour okay tell me what I need to do now tell me what I need to do now and and I think that was part of that survival mechanism because thinking beyond that was not something that I could initially do very easily as as that month progressed that I was an inpatient by the end of that month I was able to contemplate you know like a couple of days in advance and and maybe to as I was discharged I could maybe think a week in advance but anything beyond that was was too much to think about because there was just too much going on yeah. Mm. It is quite an overwhelming time that you describe. And I yeah. do think that, um, you know, often people that I've spoken to do mention that they cocoon themselves. Yeah. And yeah. it's a survival mode. Absolutely. And you just are able to focus on the, the little things. Yeah. In saying that, um, being a mother of three kids under six. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, alluding to your ability and your personality type to have a bit of a plan, someone yeah. who, um, you know, does like to have a, a sense of control about things that are in yeah. their life. Yeah. Um, being a mum, how, was, how did you manage, you know, um, your communication with them? Are there any, you know, golden nuggets that you yeah. feel would be of benefit um, to other mums? Just on reflection, can I, can I just ask, Julie, what yeah. gear are we talking? Just so that the listeners know that, um, you know, when, you know, this time when you were initially diagnosed, it was back in 2000 and Six, yeah, it was back six. in two thousand and six. So, yeah. so really, um, yeah, that that's actually a really good point, Marianne, because back then, obviously, we we wasn't that okay. But, I mean, we obviously had emails and things, but social media wasn't like it is now. Mm. Um, FaceTime yes. wasn't a thing, so you couldn't. Um, I could talk to the kids on the phone, um, but. Yeah, you, you, I couldn't. I couldn't FaceTime them or Skype them or mm. or do any of the wonderful things that we have now. So, pretty much that month, I just didn't see them, um, and because mm. they were so little, um, and because uh, I was in a ward where we had lots of you know neutropenic patients, we sort of didn't want the kids coming up and maybe putting other people at jeopardy because they were 
one my mm. eldest was in grade one and the rest was sort of in um my baby was with mum but my other one was in kindy so you know in terms of yeah. their age, infections high and so that was really tough um I think it mm. was hard on my daughter and I think that's a first child daughter sort of thing she tried mm. to step up even though she was only six uh she tried to step up and be mum for the others and to try yeah. and be helpful as she could and I can remember Coming the first night I got home from hospital, I could just see she was this pent up ball of, um, mm. you know, I'm in, it's okay, I've got this, I've got this, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, I'm in charge. And I just grabbed her and I held her and I said, um, Darling Eliza, I said, it's time for you to be a little girl again. It's okay, mummy's home. And thank you so much for stepping. And she just, she cried for about an hour. Um, oh. Just the relief of, okay, I've got my little brothers through this now mm. um other tips that were good when because I was over my treatment I was in and out of hospital a lot just because of the type of treatment that it was um because the tumor was a um the grading that it was uh and my treatment was quite an intense treatment um I was in and out of hospital a lot because of the effects of the drugs and because of different drugs um but what I would find something that was really helpful when they could come and visit me if I had a room on my own and you know with mask and things mm. um I'd get mum or somebody else to bring up just some you know little stickers or um yeah. just little things so that when they came or we'd have some games in the room and Leukemia Foundation were fantastic they brought me up um some uh games and little puppets and things to help explain to the children what was actually going on and they still to this day talk about the sunshine medicine coming in and helping oh. to get you know the cancer cells away um even though they're like 20 now they go mom remember that and, and it, it just any any little thing helps and I think it was for me it's not for everybody but for me it was really important that I was a hundred percent honest with the kids about what was going on I didn't I didn't think it was fair to them to it uh you know in a very simple terms we explained that I had cells in my body that we needed the sunshine medicine to come and that was going to try and help those cells go away um and that that would you know eventually make me somewhat better um and that we would lose my hair and so we had little uh, we made little rituals about as much as we could and we kept as much of our family rituals as we could going and included the kids as much as humanly possible. So, you know, eventually when I we- love that open. I oh, love that open communication. Was, and I think for them to this day, they know that I will not hide things from them. And, and you mm. know, they know, they don't stress if they know I'm going to the doctors because they know that yes I still have to have my testing and I still have lots of things going on and I have a quite a few latent effects from treatment but they know 100% still to this day now in their late teens that I have kept that and we've we've always stayed honest and that I won't hide things from them so it's it did drop a lot of levels of anxiety I think and that's really I think well, it's, it's a, it's a problem shared Oh, I think that's a, be a beautiful nugget, you know, a beautiful nugget. Yeah. That open and transparent communication yeah. does make them feel a part of the, the journey, so to speak, and, and also a part of your um, getting better plan. And yeah. that Sunshine Medicine, what a beautiful oh, name. So beautiful. Sunshine yeah. Medicine. But, you know, I, I think, Julie, if you don't mind me, yeah. 
looking at that sunshine medicine and looking at the choice of those words, when we look at um, choices in life and we also look at where we place our thoughts and what we choose for ourselves, would you say that the choice of using um, sunshine medicine and also your choices around that open communication have contributed to where you are now in choices that you make for yourself now? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Marianne. Um, to the point that, I mean, I've, I had another doctor during, uh, oh, I had a lot of complications on the way through. One was um, I had, I got a really bad pneumothorax um, from one of the procedures that I had. Um, and the respiratory surgeon that came through to see me, he knew I was out walking, like walking around the wards every day, just trying. I'd always, mm. I'd be the one in there exercising given my background. Um, and he, he came for his consult with me and he highlighted to me that I think I was on the right track and this is what you're talking about. He, he said, I'm not going to talk to you in your bed. Come with me. Come on, we're going to go for a walk. And we walked around the ward uh -huh. together. And he said, look, to be honest with you, it's probably one of the worst pneumothoraxes I've seen. He said, but we've got two choices here. And his wife was ironically a physio as well. He said, we've got two choices. I can either stick a drain in and try and get that out, but that comes with a number of complications. And he said, but I reckon you are full of AIE and if you just keep doing what you're doing, it's going to spontaneously fix. And in my physio head, I'm going, AIE, AIE, I cannot think what that acronym is. Like, what what have I got now? Like, oh, my gosh, what is going on? And I stopped him. We were mid-walk and I just grabbed him by the hand and I went, okay, I feel really stupid, but I can't think what AIE is at all. And he started laughing, had this uproarious belly laugh. And he said, Julie, attitude is everything and you are full of it he said you are so positive <laughs> and he said I know you're going to fix this lung on your own so he said stop thinking about it you're on it already and you're already healing it and and now so I talk to my patients now a lot about the attitude and the ones that I worry about the least are the ones that can fat, can look at the positive side I mean cancer is a hard thing to get at any point in time mm -hmm. um, it comes with there's so much uh, particularly in social media and social, you know, there's a, such mm. a negative connotation mm. around it. But at the end of the day, um, I called my cancer my gift because it just um, brought, it reprioritizes life. It's a little bit like COVID at the moment. I mean, for people, it's yeah. it stops mm -hmm. you in your tracks and you get to, if you're smart, you get to um, evaluate what's going on. You get to assess what's going on in your life. You get to reprioritize. You get to move forward and maybe walk a path that you didn't think you were going to walk, but boy, it's the best one for you. And now in the research uh, that's coming out, the scientific papers now, um, they're calling that AIE or the positivity, they're actually calling it treatment-related optimism. And even though clinically we've known for a very long time now that it makes such a difference to people's outcomes, there is now actual hard scientific evidence saying, yes, this makes a difference. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing that if you can any, in any moment, in any day, find the positive thing to cling on to, it's a, it's a really good thing to do. So, Julie, in saying that, you know, there's a number of people, and I'm sure you may have, uh, actually I'll ask you, in yeah. that in that time when you were in intensive treatment, yeah. um, I know that sometimes people can't, you know, they, they can be quite low and, you know, they, they can't find that positive or they struggle yeah. um, with that positive. Is there any suggestion that you can make? I know that you um, 
um, just briefly suggested, even just in the little things. Yeah. But is there any other golden nugget that you feel might be, you know, if people are struggling with that, just, oh, this is just really hard. Too much. Um, yeah. Too much. Yeah. Any suggestion you can make in that sense or anything where that you would like to share that might give us insight as listeners to, you know, even having that recognition of, oh, I can remember when. Yes. And yeah. this is what I did. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of things there. Um, because now, so I, I don't know that people listening would be aware of this, but what I do now is I do do um, cancer rehab as a physio. So I'm, it's not just. Fantastic. Yeah. So it's now not just, um, I guess, what I have learned, but I, I am constantly learning from the um, people with cancer that I work with from how they work as well. Um, I find personally that um, it is it is the little things and sometimes um, it's for me, it's when I say it's the little things, it's looking at a sunset, looking at a sunrise, it's hopping out into the sun. But probably for me and for some people they'd go oh I don't I have days where I couldn't do that um, but for me as a physio and I had a patient exactly last night he was talking about his I just I want to I want to his his comment was I love bike riding and I love cycling but there are days that I wake up where I am so tired and I I just I can't find the energy nor the motivation I cannot find anything that I can do to make myself get on the bike because I'm also feeling nausea. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, overwhelmed by everything that's going on in my life. I just, I can't get started. Um, and so what we actually did, um, he, I hopped him up and I said, right. And I said, how are you feeling in this moment? He said, I feel nausea and I'm feeling tired and I don't know what else to do so I said come with me and we stood together and I said right let's just jump up and down on the spot we, we sort of stood in the sunshine <laughs> we were near a window I said open the window I said, come on let's jump up and down 10 times together and we got giggling and we got laughing and we started doing it and I said right now stop and he goes okay and I said you got another 10 in you he goes yeah so we did another 10 and then we stopped and then we looked at each other and we had another little bit of a laugh and then we did another 10. Well, we probably ended up doing it three or four times. And then I said, how are you feeling? And he goes, oh, actually, I feel a bit breathless. I said, okay, come on, sit down, have a little glass of water and, and let's talk about other things. Mm -hmm. And he sat down and I said, can I just ask you, how's your nausea? And he said, oh, it's gone. And I said, oh, if I said to you now, come on, let's, let's go get the bike out and we could go for a bike ride together. How would you feel about that? He said, oh, I'm actually ready to go. Yeah, I'd love that. Um, and so I think it's um, sometimes mm. it's just... You know, whether it's, and this is now going back to being a mum, whether it's having kids around or it's something, it's, it's, you just need to take that first step. It's, it's take mm -hmm. a step and do it, but doing something that will either get some endorphins going, get you out in the sun, get you breathing. I think breathing is a big part of that. I think if we can aerate those lungs, which therefore aerates our brains more, some of that fog lifts, um, mm. it gets a little bit of adrenaline going and then you do feel a little bit more motivated. So whether it's for some people, um, you know, go and stand in the garden and smell a flower or whatever, mm. just I, I think for me with the children, the three under six, that was my, that was my gold I think because when I was lying in bed couldn't couldn't think of having the energy to get out of it 
one of the little ones would come and grab my hand and say, Mummy, can I come and show you this flower I found? And so we head out to the garden and then that started me going. And then once I was up, I then just kept moving. So um, sometimes it How can be beautiful is that? Yeah. And I do think parents do do a little bit better in general um, on treatment because you have somebody outside of yourself to help motivate you, to help motivate. stand you up, help get you, you know, give you those extra few breaths, extra few steps that you want to take. And I think for people who don't have somebody else around, a partner or a friend or somebody just to say, come on, let's just do this or just distract you for a moment, that would be a little bit more challenging. But I'm hoping most people have someone that they have with them that um, they can talk to, even if it's sometimes a phone call to somebody, it can be that thing that can help you. Yeah, that value of human connection. Absolutely. That is the motivator to take that first step. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're, they are invaluable. If you look at the, you know, what you've shared here today, um, how you did cocoon yourself as, at first yeah. and how important that survival cocooning was for you, just to process where you were at in your own life. And, you know, we haven't touched on your relationships, but obviously, you know, surrounding yourself, you've mentioned your three children and the importance of you and the focus in in, in saying and sharing that they were the ones that motivated you to just get out and smell the roses for want yeah. of a better word. But yeah. also those valuable connections that you had that you could lean on to support you in difficult times. So yeah. obviously your partner or Absolutely. your mum you yeah. mentioned, yeah. Um, you know, recognising the strength of having that little network of people around you that um, were going to support you along the way has been has been um, an important ingredient to your health and well-being oh, 100%. today. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, so you don't quite know where you'd be without um, having relationships with other people through any of this. And, and, and with Leukemia Foundation, too, I mean, the support that they provide as well, that's amazing, you know, for some people that and are that a bit more isolated. Oh, pay it forward. I love that. Yeah. You have paid you pay it forward, Julie. You have been someone who, yes, we were there, Leukemia Foundation, were, you know, we were a connection that you had during that time. But we too have now valued you as an individual, valued you and what you could bring and what you've learned and and you know it certainly from from my perspective having the privilege of having known you over that time um you you have paid it forward you come back and you share what you have learned on your journey and you share it with you know with just that um that that rawness and that honesty and I think nothing's more powerful than someone who has looked through the lens of that side of the fence. Yeah. You I, do see it differently. Yeah. And, and, and Marianne, mm -hmm. um, I think uh, connections and human stories yes. and humans being vulnerable enough to share with raw honesty what they mm. have been through, I, I think that's something that we need to do more of. And I'm so grateful that you're offering um, these podcasts because um, – Sometimes uh, giving voice to people who might not otherwise be able to engage um, with, you know, the community at large and spread a story or spread their message. And I think I talk a lot about um, the fact that in our society we do chronicity of 
um, we do, sorry, acuteness of injury very, very well. We know that people get sick and they go to the doctor and then they get better. I think as a society mm-hmm. we fall into that little trap of, um, you know, particularly when someone's been through cancer, we we get them through when they're on chemotherapy, but then sometimes yeah. that support steps away. And, and again, mm-hmm. even just the chappy that I saw last night, my little jumping friend, um, for him, that's the end of treatment was really hard because actual mm. physical treatment because that support that you have from the nurses and the doctors, it steps away and, and often is the case that that next phase where you're just off treatment is often the hardest and so many hardest. people don't expect that. They they don't realise, they think that the chemo and the radiotherapy or bone marrow transplant or whatever it is that they're facing or harvest is going to be the hardest and so they work really hard to get through that and they get all the people around them to get themselves through that. Then they stop treatment and two things happen. Their expectations of where they should be uh, is is often too high like they they are expecting I'll finish treatment so I should be able to get back into life um and so does that of their support network so I think it's really really important to give people voices to talk about you know what that phase is often the hardest and be prepared for it because it's not what you think it will be the more we can talk about stories and be really honest with that not only will we educate people who are actually on treatment themselves but will educate their families and the greater broader society and even down to um, employers who have this expectation oh well why aren't you back at work yet because you've finished treatment Mm. your hair's come back why are you still you look normal you look normal why (laughs) why are you not back at work so I think it's really really important that we are brave enough to tell our stories to let people know that when you finish treatment is often the hardest time where you're getting the late effects of treatment, you're having the treatment come out of your body, you're often deconditioned, uh, fatigue has set in and often you Mm. can be in quite a hole. So it's really, really important. My default often when people would say, how are you, Juliet? Go, I'm so good. And I'd have this really little high pitch in my voice and then I'd listen to myself and then I'd stop and I'd say, you know what? No, I'm actually not. This is what's happening. Mm. This is why it's happening. And I need you to know that because I need a bit of support at the moment. And um, and I need you to know this because this will be the same for other people that you know that have cancer. And and I think that's valuable. It's so valuable, Julie. And I'm glad you've brought that up because that's been the has that been the main um, driving force and the main motivator for you to create the Pentimento project. hundred percent. Yeah. And if you if you look at that that in itself, if you're quite happy to share just a little capture of the importance of not only the physical but the emotional and the um, mental so, um, benefits of what you've what you create that'd be really helpful yeah, okay so yeah I've called I'll start with why I called my business the Pentimento project um for any art lovers out there they may already be on to it um and I often have patients ask me and some patients don't ask me but they go away and they google what is Pentimento and they often will come back to me and say oh you are more clever than what I realised. Um, what pentimento is, is pentimento is an art term. Uh, and what that art term refers to is a painting that whether through time or circumstance, um, conditions or environmental things or external factors affecting the painting, the painting loses 
layers of paint Um, because when you look at a painting it's not just what you see there are multiple 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 layers behind that and basically Mm. pentimento is that coming away of all the different layers um, of that paint to leave the really raw original condition of an artwork and for me and for lots of people when you finish treatment that's how you feel you feel sort of Mm stripped bare could be another term but that's not really a good business name um but yeah you feel you feel very raw very vulnerable very exposed um so and that's not just physically because you're so deconditioned but it's emotionally as you mentioned um mentally you know some often cognition is highly affected Mm -hmm. where people I used to have uh, a photographic memory going into this um, coming out of that do I still have that no it's I've had to learn relearn um, new strategies acceptance acceptance and but also try Mm. to relearn new ways for my brain to process information so I was finding you know long-term memory no problems at all but downloading new memories was really really hard um so that's Mm. why I set up the Pentimento project as uh again as a rehab um uh well not business but a rehab service that could help people where they just didn't know where to take the next step like what is that that I how do I start to re-put my life back together um because even for me and all my physiotherapy training and all the work I'd done with sporting teams and everything else I'd done I didn't know where to start um but exercise I I feel very privileged to work as a physiotherapist because exercise is that tool that we all have in our box that helps um, on so many levels it helps with cognition it helps with your immune system Um, obviously the obvious things is that it helps uh you know strength and fitness and and that overall sense of wellness but it helps with fatigue if you can get some exercise or activity is probably the better word that I should use um sleep becomes a little bit easier so it it, you know I really wanted to help people um individually and there is no recipe everybody's story is very very different um but Mm. to use exercise as that tool um as well as you know, mindfulness, meditation tools, visualization, I use a lot of, um, mm. but use them all together um, and experiences and gathering information and developing relationships with people um, to help them try and um, find the best way forward using their own purpose that they have in their life and using their passions um and a lot of neurophysiology and neuroanatomy that yeah. I, that people don't need to run like I educate people a lot about that but I have tricks up my sleeve that I can get people doing things that they don't even realize is exercise and that it's beneficial but if you can just re-engage people back with their lives um they're doing the hard yards themselves so easily and in with so much fun and pleasure. So that's really important. That's that's sort of the the crux of what I try and do now. Oh, that's fantastic. And the way you word it, Julie, is just beautiful. Oh. You know, um, your insight into just the human spirit and wanting to connect at that level. So, you know, thank you. Thank you for sharing some time and some golden nuggets with us today. I know I walk away with um, a deeper understanding of you as a person and recognising that, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but some golden nuggets that you've shared here today are very much looking at connections with people, 
your open communication with people are really key factors um, just for your relationships and the value of those relationships. And, and you know, and certainly your Pentimento project, well, it captures so many aspects of living well, I think is really, really important and valuable. And, you know, your attitude is everything. And I love that little saying that you have, you know, the AIE. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think of something But, you know, attitude is everything. And, you know, we all do have choices. And it's lovely to reach out to people like yourself if you are struggling in trying to find what has meaning for you in life. And 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 hopefully this little podcast is is an opportunity for people to take away some really lovely golden nuggets. If you had top three favourites, what would be your takeaway golden nuggets? Yes. Um, so my takeaway golden nuggets would be engage. So in, like you were saying, engage with your family and friends openly and honestly, and that is also engage with your team of medical doctors. Be really honest with them. Stop trying to pretend you're coping when maybe you're not. Be really super honest because people can help when you think that it's something small Uh, they can help you. So engage is the first one. Number two would be, for me, uh, work out what for you your purpose is. It doesn't have to Mm -hmm. be a work-related goal. It could be, you know, your children. It could be um, just trying to make every day the best that it can be. Um, It could be, uh, you know, um, trying to make trying to reach out to the friends that you have and talk to them a little bit more. But but find a purpose for you. I mean, it, it might be get back to work or do a little bit of work or it could be, you know, start a garden, whatever it is, but find, find your purpose. And my last thing that I want to talk about is um, whatever it is that you choose, whatever it is that you do in life, make sure that you're picking the things that you love, that you feel passionate about, that you um, – that you want to incorporate more into your life because, and again, from that neurophysiology perspective, whether it's an activity or an exercise or a, a daily task that you're doing, if we can get you to engage with passion, so enjoying so much what you're doing, the benefits of whatever that is that you're doing will be at least threefold. You will, you will mm. gain so much more from that. And if you, if you engage, have purpose and have passion, of course you're going to have the best attitude in the world because you're filling your life with so much positivity. And things that bring you joy. And it brings yeah. you joy. Yeah, that's right. That would be my So lovely. Oh, I love them, Julie. Just Mm. love them. Thank you again. You're just a beautiful person. And as I said earlier, um, I do feel privileged for for having met you many years ago and for knowing you over all these years. So thank you, Julie. Thanks, Marianne. And thank you so much again for this opportunity. And and ditto from me. You know, it's been so lovely to have met you and to you know, have you helping people that are in this situation is amazing. And thank you so much for all that you do for all of us out there that have been on this cancer continuum. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this episode today with Julie Allen. We'd firstly like to thank Julie for sharing her story with us today. And we hope that you, the listeners, have been able to take away some of the golden nuggets that Julie so eloquently sowed throughout this episode. If you would like any more information on our service or on today's episode, 
please feel free to call 1-800-620-420 and someone will connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.